I heard a joke, so this is not original to me, but uh, a teacher was teaching about religion to her class at school, and she said, if any of you have religious beliefs, feel free tomorrow to bring something, an, an item, a symbol of your religious beliefs. And so one little girl was a Catholic girl, and she brought a crucifix. There was a little Jewish boy, and he brought a menorah. And there was this little Baptist boy. He brought a casserole dish. Makes sense, doesn't it? I mean, we, we love our food, and we Southern Baptists especially love our casseroles. Cracks me up. You know, we had big breakfast a few weeks ago, and it was a table full of casserole dishes. And they were good. Those were some good breakfast casseroles, but we do love our food. You know, and there's good reason for that. That's actually pretty biblical when you think about it. Just think about Holy Week, right? The week leading up to Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection. In fact, on the day before Palm Sunday, Jesus was at a feast being held in his honor when he was anointed. And then Monday of Holy Week, Jesus is hungry and he stops at a fig tree that isn't producing figs and he curses it and uses that to teach his disciples about fruitfulness. Throughout the week of Jesus' final week, he teaches a lot of parables that almost all deal with food in some way. Wednesday of that week was consumed with talk of and preparations for the Passover meal, which of course we know Jesus ate and enjoyed with his disciples on Thursday and used that to institute the Lord's Supper. On Friday, as Jesus hung on the cross, he was thirsty and asked for something to drink. And then on Easter Sunday, really after Easter Sunday, after his resurrection, three different times we see Jesus interacting with food. Jesus breaks bread with disciples on the road to Emmaus. Jesus eats some fish in the upper room to prove to his disciples that he's no ghost. And then the disciples are fishing on the Sea of Galilee one morning. Jesus cooks them breakfast on the beach. Now, why is this all so significant, you may wonder. I mean, isn't eating just a normal part of everyday life? Okay, so Jesus ate. The disciples got hungry. Exactly. Eating is a big part of life. And not just to sustain our physical bodies, not just to put fuel in our tanks, not just to stop our stomachs from grumbling in the middle of worship on a Sunday morning. We eat because God has created us to enjoy this act of preparing and sharing a meal with others. That's a central part of what it means to be human. And it's been that way since the Garden of Eden. It's not... Eating and drinking are not, just spirit, are not just physical acts for nutritional purposes. They are spiritual. They're social. They're communal. You know the expression, you are what you eat? Some of us reflect that more than others. But this phrase originally came about to suggest that we are nothing more than physical creatures. It was really said to downplay the biblical truth that we are created in God's image as eternal and spiritual beings of infinite worth and value. But this saying, you are what you eat, unknowingly hits at a spiritual truth. When God creates people in Genesis chapter 2, they are presented as hungry beings. And the whole world is laid before them as food. Now, we tend to focus on God's commands in Genesis 1 to be fruitful and multiply, to fill the earth and subdue it. 
But God also commanded them to eat the fruit of the trees in the garden, didn't he? That was just as much a command from God. Our physical existence is dependent on eating food. We literally have to take God's creation into our bodies, transform it into the building blocks for life. So in a, in a way, we really are what we eat, aren't we? God has set the world before us as a banquet table. This image of a banquet table is found throughout the Bible. It's central to the idea of living life the way God intends it to be lived. We see that from Genesis, there in the Garden of Eden, all the way to Revelation at the wedding feast of the Lamb. And we are all invited to eat and drink from the Lord's table in His kingdom. But eating food is never just a physical act. It is also meant to be an act of communion with God. You see, we tend to separate life into physical and spiritual, into secular and sacred. But the Bible teaches us that the spiritual underlies everything. Biblically, there really is no such thing as secular. It's all spiritual. It's all to be sacred. And we get into trouble when we try to separate the, the, the spiritual from the everyday life. We think that we can, you know, be one way at church and be another way on Friday night. You know, I can remember as a kid, you know, people saying, you know, don't lie in church. As if, okay, so lying at home is okay, right? I mean, that's, but that's the way we think. Don't act that way. You're in church. So, I should be acting that way all the time, right? The way I'm supposed to act in church, I should be acting that way all the time. Throughout the week, it doesn't matter how we treat our bodies. That's what we think. It doesn't matter how we treat our bodies. It's just going to die and go to heaven. It doesn't matter how we treat creation, does it? I mean, isn't it all going to pass away someday? And so, sometimes we can be guilty of not caring about the environment, not caring about our bodies, not caring whether I'm overweight or not, whether I drink or, or, or smoke too much or drink too much or smoke or do drugs or, or not get enough rest or you know, not take Sabbath rest as God commanded. We, we tend to sort of separate the spiritual from the physical. But the material world, including your body and mine, are God's creations, right? It's all the Lord's. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. Everything in it, including you and me. And He created us and everything good. He declared it was very Good. Our bodies, the world around us, are ways in which God makes His presence known. They are ways in which God reveals Himself and His truth to us. And so when we eat, we should give thanks for the food that we eat. Because like the water that we drink and the air that we breathe, it's all God's gift of grace to everyone. And that means that eating can and should be an act of worship. An act of communion with our Creator. One author wrote, In the food we eat, God's love is made life. God blesses everything He creates. And in biblical language, this means that He makes all creation the sign and means of His presence and wisdom, love, and revelation. Or as Psalm 34, 8 puts it simply, O oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. There's a profound significance for how we relate to God's good creation. As bearers of His image, as stewards of His earth, 
God has given us a priestly role in creation. We saw that in our New Testament reading twice. It referred to our role as priests. We are a priesthood, a royal priesthood. And we should act in a priestly manner as worshipers, offering thanksgiving and praise to God, blessing Him for the gift of His creation. We should receive all of God's gifts with grateful praise. And just as a priest, you know, the role of a priest is to stand between God and people. As bearers of God's image, we stand between the Creator and His creation. We are the representatives of His presence in the world. We receive the world from God as a gift. And we offer it back to God as an offering in our thanksgiving and our praise through, through our wise, creative, and life-giving stewardship of all that He has made. That's our role. But as we know, very quickly in the biblical story, like in the next chapter, we lost that priestly role, didn't we? We we gave it up. Interestingly enough, humanity's fall into sin also involved what? Food. Just as God gave us food to eat, commanded us to eat food, just as food can be, you know, eating food together, preparing food together, can be an act of worship and communion with God, it was through food that humanity fell into sin. Because Adam and Eve ate that forbidden fruit. They disobeyed God's command. Of all the trees in the garden, there was only one God said, do not eat. And what did Adam and Eve do? They ate of that one tree. They had all the trees in the garden. They had to have the one thing God said, don't eat. That original transgression of God's command also meant that they rejected the world as that sign of God's presence and provision. They renounced their priestly role. Adam and Eve wanted to take the world as a thing in and of itself without its creator. They wanted to live by bread alone. Today we see this ancient heresy course dressed up in new clothes today in fact one one thing you can call it one term for this is naturalistic atheism this philosophy is a rejection of the idea that the universe has a creator people who are atheists who are naturalists they believe that nature itself has become the highest good and the chief end of man We live as if everything is purely natural and physical. There is no spiritual component. All of creation and life are just the result of random chance. We're just here by accident. We came from nothing. We mean nothing. We go to nothing. That's what they believe. Whereas in our study Wednesday night, our our, uh, Reconnect study uh, with Ravi Zacharias, he explained that naturalistic atheists, you know, they, they talk about us taking a leap of faith, but they take their own leap of faith. And he puts it this way, when you believe that ultimately life is only matter, it therefore doesn't really matter. If life is only matter, just things and stuff, then life really doesn't matter. To deny our Creator is to believe that the fruit of the tree of life was not offered as a gift to people. It wasn't given by God or blessed by God for our use. Instead, we partake of the one food God said was condemned. That we must not eat. And in eating the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, what we sought was to commune with ourselves and not with God. This is what John was writing about in 1 John 2.15 when he said, Do not love the world, nor anything in the world. 
If anyone loves the world, the love for the Father is not in them. Now I want us to pause here and I want us to consider some terminology before we go any further. The Lord's Supper is called by different names in different Christian traditions and denominations. And, you know, we have our preference. We typically call it the Lord's Supper. We might sometimes refer to it as communion. But really, there's four different terms, and every one of them has something to teach us about what this meal represents and how it is a picture of our priestly role in the, in, in, in the world. The first is that it's a supper, right? That's why we typically call it the Lord's Supper. And by calling it a supper, we again remind ourselves that we are physical beings who have to eat and drink. That God has made us dependent on His provision through His good creation. It's also called communion. And this term reminds us that we celebrate this meal together as a family. We come together as a community. And through remembering Him, we deepen our fellowship with Christ by the Holy Spirit. It is communion together with God. Another term for it is the Eucharist. Now, Eucharist comes from the Greek word eucharisto, which means to give thanks. And so when we think of this as a Eucharist, it reminds us that we are to come to this table with gratitude in our hearts for the gift of grace that God has given us. Not just the gift of food and drink, but the gift of salvation. We put our faith and trust in His Son, Jesus Christ. And the fourth term Protestants don't usually use. We don't normally refer to this as a mass. Okay, that, that, that's a Catholic term that we tend to kind of shun. But it's interesting, that word mass, it captures an important dimension of the meal that we often forget. Mass is a contraction of the Latin dismissal at the end of, of the service. And I'm not a Latin expert, but I think it's pronounced this way. Ite misa est. Does that sound about right, Matt? Ite misa est. And so that misa there is where the word mass comes from. Now, ite misa est is go, you are sent. So that's the dismissal. At the end of their Lord's Supper, they say, go, you are sent. This reminds us of the rhythm of the Christian life. We come together in worship. We come to commune with the Lord at His table. But then we go into the world on mission. That's important for us to remember as Great Commission Christians. There's something we can learn from that. But let's think today about this meal's call for us specifically to live Eucharistic lives. To acknowledge the divine source of creation. How we should receive it as a gift with profound gratitude, worship, and praise. Because as sinful, fallen people, we're still hungry people, aren't we? Amen. Anybody here hungry right now? Is it just me? We're still dependent on things outside of ourselves. We're dependent on other people. We need food. We need air. We need water. We need sleep. But alienated from God by our sin, what we tend to do is try to satisfy those hungers and desires and needs for love and meaning in worldly ways. Again, we reenact Eden over and over every day, don't we? We reject God. We turn from the source of all meaning and purpose in life, the, the good shepherd who provides for our every need, and we try to meet those needs on our own. 
We turn creation into like this closed circuit that excludes God, that excludes His reign and His grace from our lives. Someone once said, For the one who thinks food in itself is the source of life, eating is communion with death. Humanity abdicated its role as priests in the world and instead became slaves to the world. Israel fell into that trap time and again. And all too often churches do as well. See, we don't just sin by disobeying God. We sin by failing to hunger for God alone. We no longer look to God as the source of life, as the giver of every good gift, and instead we try to live our lives independent of Him, apart from communion with Him. This happens when we primarily think of God in religious terms as something that we focus on on Sundays instead of letting Him permeate every aspect of our lives. When we relegate God to a day of the week or a particular building or a particular set of activities, we in effect become practical atheists because we live our daily lives as if we and everyone else around us was purely material. As if everything was just physical. As if it all depends on me and I fail to receive all of this as a gift from God. Instead of transforming it into life and returning it to Him in thanksgiving and praise and by helping those around me and pointing them to God, I just make it all about me. So there's a pattern at work in the Lord's Supper that I think is not only helpful for reflecting on this meal, but for reclaiming our priestly roles in creation. It can help us consider how we view the world, how we receive God's gifts, and how we use them for His glory and for the good of others. So look with me, if you will, on the screen or in your copy of Scripture at Matthew chapter 26. We're going to start in verse 26, read through uh, 28. While they were eating, while they were eating the Passover meal, Jesus took bread, gave thanks, and broke it. And gave it to his disciples saying, take and eat, this is my body. Then he took the cup, gave thanks, and offered it to them saying, drink from it all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and Paul in 1 Corinthians 11 all use this same pattern. Take, give thanks, break, and give. That pattern is repeated in the three synoptic gospels and by Paul. Now this formula, if you will... I think is how God intended Adam and Eve and all of us to interact with His creation. We were supposed to take, to receive, to lay hold of God's good creation. We were to give God the praise and thanksgiving for the good gifts of His grace and provision. And then we were supposed to break or refashion and make usable God's creation. You know, when God commands the first humans in Genesis chapter 1 to subdue the earth and to rule 
over the fish of the sea and the animals on the land and the birds of the air. Both of those Hebrew words, subdue and rule, include in their meaning this idea of treading down or breaking up. These words can also be used to talk about kneading bread. The idea is that we take what God has given and we create useful, life-giving things from it. We continue the act of creation by taking what God has given us and making new stuff out of it. That's what culture is, by the way. Culture is taking what God has given and making something from it that helps humanity to flourish and to better bear God's image. That's what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to take hold of, give thanks for, and make usable what God has created. And then we're to give it back to God in our worship, in our offerings. We're to give it to others for their good as a continuing of God's blessings to all people. This is what God was talking about when He said to Abraham and his descendants in Genesis chapter 12, I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. Whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. And again, this foreshadows Israel's priestly role in the world to reflect the Creator God, and to help draw people to Him. He would take the people of Israel. He would bless them. He would break them through 400 years of slavery in Egypt and then give them to the world so that through them and ultimately through their Messiah, Jesus Christ, God could bless all peoples. But just as Adam and Eve did, just as we do, Israel rejected This role, they excluded the God who delivered them and made them into a people and they began to look to the world and like the world rather than act as God's representatives to the world. And that brings us to the third act in the redemptive story. God gave us a priestly role in creation. We lost that priestly role through sin. But then there's the renewal of the priestly life in redemption. See, God did not leave us enslaved to our countless desires and hungers for which there seems to be no final satisfaction. See, God created us in His image. He created us after His own heart. He created us for Himself. And it is only through the grace of God made available through the sacrifice of Jesus that we can find the source and satisfaction of our hungers and our desires. There really is a God-shaped hole in every heart. And only Jesus Christ, the bread of life, can satisfy that hunger. Only Jesus Christ, the living water, can quench that thirst. Humanity has been groping through the darkness, searching for we know not what. Groping toward the garden from which we were exiled. And so God sent the light of Christ To show us the way. To make the way. So that we could return to God and the garden. So that we could feast once again at His banquet table. Redemption really is the completion of what God has undertaken from the beginning. And that is so that our hunger would drive us to Him. And in Jesus, creation once again can serve as that sign and that symbol of God's presence and provision. His goodness and His grace. Jesus alone can satisfy the hunger of your heart. He really is the only one who can. In Christ, the true life that was lost at Eden 
can be restored. Jesus brings this redemption to everyone who trusts in Him. He makes us new creations so that once again we can commune with God. And in the end, we know Jesus will make all things new. He's going to renew all of creation. He's going to bring the spiritual and the physical back together, the heavenly and the earthly, into a unified whole. Turn with me in your Bibles to Revelation 21 and 22. We'll see this together. Revelation 21, verses 1 through 7. John, in his vision, saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and He will live with them. They will be His people, and God Himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death, or mourning, or crying, or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Now look at the first few verses of chapter 22. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life as clear as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life. Bearing twelve crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city. And His servants will serve Him. They will see His face. And His name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun. For the Lord God will give them light And they will reign forever and ever. This is how the redemptive story ends. Heaven and earth become one. God once more walks with His image bearers. We once again can have our fill of the tree of life. And the river of life will forever quench our thirst. God satisfies our every need and desire. And we receive it all with thanksgiving and praise. There's no more parting, no more strife, no more enmity between God and man. We will once again be in right relationship to God and His good world. This is why the sacred meals of Passover and the Lord's Supper and the wedding feast of the Lamb feature so prominently throughout Scripture. Bread and wine offered on the altar, received in remembrance of Him, They embody the whole range of the Eucharistic experience of life. That that gratitude, grace-filled, giving and receiving of life that we receive, but that we also offer to God and to those around us. God created us dependent on food, as represented here in the bread and the cup. He created the world to be a banquet table spread before us as His gift. We are made to be celebrants of a cosmic Eucharist. To enjoy the transformation of life in God. And when we come to the Lord's table, we so come as recipients of His grace. We come as a people who have been redeemed. Who have been made right with God through the death and resurrection 
of Jesus Christ. And this morning, if you do not have a relationship with Jesus Christ, if you've never come to that place where you realize that you were lost in your sin, that you were separated from God by your choices and your mistakes, that you were hungering and thirsting for what you didn't know, and so you were going to the world, you were going to all kinds of other things to try to fill that God-shaped hole, and maybe, maybe this morning you come to realize that that's what you've been doing. And that you need to turn from that and come to Jesus and let Him be that bread of life to satisfy your hungers. You need Him to be the living water to quench your thirst. You need Him to restore your relationship with your Creator, to make you right with God, to give you a fresh start. I invite you as we sing in just a moment to come. To come and place your faith and trust in the one who died on the cross so that your eyes would be open and you could see all the good gifts that God has given you. Would you do that this morning? Would you come this morning and pray and receive the gift of God's grace through Jesus Christ? Maybe this morning God has put something else on your heart. Maybe you realize even as a Christian you've been tending to to, to drift from God. To look to yourself, to look to the world around you to satisfy the things that you know can only be found in Christ because you have tasted and seen that the Lord is good. Maybe this morning you come and kneel at this altar and surrender your life anew and afresh to Jesus Christ today. Maybe God is leading you not with this church family. I don't know what God is speaking to you right now. But if you're listening, I know He's saying something. We're going to stand and we're going to sing in just a moment. I invite you to come. Make sure that you are right with God as we approach this table today. And and anybody here this morning who knows Christ as Lord and Savior is welcome to partake of this meal. You don't have to be a member of First Baptist Church. But this meal is meaningless if you don't know Jesus Christ. If you have a question about that, I invite you to come. Would you stand with me? Let's pray together. Almighty God, we thank you for your grace. This table reminds us of your grace. It reminds us of the body of Christ broken for us. The blood of the new covenant spilled for our sakes. Father, if there's anyone here today that needs to put their faith and trust in you. That needs to receive that gift of grace. Not not their own religiousness. Not their own good deeds. But to to totally throw themselves at your mercy. I pray they would come this morning. Father, what?